Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise this morning. From the moment we rise to the moment we lie down again at night, Lord, you're worthy. Because you're the one that gives us breath, you're the one that gives us life. But even more than that, Lord, this life is not worth living if it's not in relationship with you. We thank you that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we can know you. That we can really, really know you. That we can have a relationship where we grow in our love for you and our love for the world around us. And so we give you praise, God, for the baptisms this morning. We give you praise for everything that's happening around this facility on this day, Lord. We just give you abundant praise, Lord. You have been so good to our church family. We pray now as we open your word together that you would speak. Lord, it's always our goal when we come together as a church family that we would humble ourselves and listen to your voice. We know there's a lot of noise in this world, Lord, but what we really need is you. And so I pray that you would speak to every heart that's in this room. I know that no one is here by chance, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you are the God who brought them here, that you ordained for them to be here on this day, to see these baptisms, to sing these songs, to meet with these people for your purposes. And so I pray that you would do what you came, brought them here to accomplish. Thank you that your Holy Spirit works in our lives. We give you a praise in advance for what you are going to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, if you would, go ahead and find your seat. As you find your seat, if you would, find a Bible. If you brought one, great. You can use your phone, use the one in the pew in front of you. But go ahead and open it with me to Psalm chapter 139 this morning. Psalm 139. What an amazing morning we've already had together, isn't it? I mean, it's an unbelievable morning that we get a chance to come together and to experience baptisms and also really to celebrate what God has done in the life of this church family. It wasn't much more than a year ago that we began to step in faith, believing that he wanted us to do these projects that are going to be beneficial not only for our generation, but for the generations to come, for his glory in the city of San Francisco. And so we have much to praise God for what he has done. He really has been incredibly good to First Baptist Church of San Francisco. Has he not? Do you guys agree this morning? He's been very good to us. Just as a heads up, next week we are going to start a new sermon series. It's going to be a study of the seven letters that you find in the book of Revelation to seven different churches. And so it's going to be a really interesting study, and that is going to actually take us all the way up to Easter Sunday. So I hope that you'll join us in that sermon series. But what that means is today is the, the final, the finale of our sermon series about the Psalms that we've called Soul Songs. We're going to end this morning on a high note. Psalm chapter 139 is one of the most loved chapters in all of the Bible, and, and that makes sense. When you read Psalm 139, you've probably heard phrases from it, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It is a psalm that is deeply personal. But here at the very beginning, I just want us to, to remember this. I think it's easy when you're reading the Psalms to get so caught up because they're so personal. There's so much personal feelings and emotions that we can relate to that we can miss out on one important truth. And that is that this, this Psalm, like every Psalm, like every piece of Scripture, is not primarily about us. This Psalm is primarily not about you. It's not about me. This Psalm is about God. Every piece of scripture is meant to point toward him, to teach us about him. 
when you read the different portions of the Bible, they all tell us about God in different ways. You read the Old Testament narratives or you read the Gospels and you learn about who God is in the form of story. There's other places like the letters, the epistles in the New Testament where you read very orderly accounts, great logic about who God is and what he's done. But the Psalms, they are meant to be different. The Psalms are prayers. They're songs that are meant not only to teach us about God, but as we read about who God is, for us to experience something together. That's the goal of Psalm 139. Not that you would only understand God more, but that you would experience Him, that you would even feel as you're reading this psalm, His presence and His power. And so if you would, I'm going to read it. We're not going to put it on the screen this morning because I want you to, want you to hear it, okay? I want you to listen to one, Psalm 139, and as you do so, seek to make this your own personal prayer. Let's read it together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even, in the, dar- even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take up your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's the word of God this morning. It's an amazing, amazing psalm. I don't know about you and your own personal experience in prayer, but the longer that I walk with Christ, one of the things that I realize in my prayer life is that that some of the most impactful prayer times that I have Those moments where I'm feeling anxious, those moments where I have circumstances that are bearing down on me, those moments where I feel desperate, some of the most impactful moments are those times where I simply recall the attributes of God. Where I take time and I stop thinking about all my circumstances and I think about Him. I think about who He really is. 
I think about his attributes. Well, in this text, that's exactly what David is doing. He's focusing his heart on the attributes of God, and he's proclaiming those attributes. Now, what kind of attributes is he talking about? Well, we've talked about this before, but there are two kind of key categories when you are talking about the attributes of God. There are those attributes which we would call communicable attributes. That means that you can catch them. Uh, here's, let me give you an example of this. Uh, my two daughters, they're two years old and four years old. They love one another. Everywhere they go, if you find one, you're going to find the other one. They play together. They eat together. They drink next to each other. They, if they can, take naps near each other. They're always together. So when one of them gets sick, what do you think is going to happen? The other one's going to get sick right after. It's, it's like clockwork. It happened this week. May got sick, then Allie got sick, and then I got sick. This is what happens. Why? Because it's a communicable virus. If you're close to somebody, you catch it. Well, in the same way, except with much better outcome, the more you are with God, the closer you are to him, what the scriptures tell us is the more you become like him. There are things in the scripture, attributes that we see are true about God. We know that God is loving. Uh, God is just. He is truthful. Uh, God is compassionate. God is merciful. And so what we find in scripture is that as you get to know him, as you really get to know him, as you get close to him in relationship with him, you begin to bear those attributes. You become more kind. You become more compassionate and loving. Those are the communicable attributes of God. But what makes this psalm so different is that David is actually not highlighting those attributes. Instead, he's highlighting that second category of attributes, and that's what we would call the non-communicable attributes of God. And those are the attributes that no matter how close to God that we get in relationship with him, we will never be those things. There are certain attributes that are God's alone. He is creator and we are not. Therefore, he alone is these things. You see him there in the text. Verse, verses 1 through 4 tells us the first one. It tells us that God is omniscient. Okay, Verses 1 through 4, God is omniscient, which is a word that simply means this, that he is all-knowing. Now, I love this. This psalm, again, is written by David. And this is a side note, but one of the things I love about David is that he just destroys every kind of modern-day conception of manhood that we have, right? Uh, when, when we think about what real manhood is, our modern culture thinks you have to be rough and tough, and David was all those things, but what was David also doing? David was a harpist, right? It kind of blows the modern-day manhood out of the water, right? We, we have all these ideas, but biblical manhood isn't just being rough and tough. He's a harpist. But what we also find in this text is that he's an incredible poet. This is a man that loves God, and he uses the giftings that he has to, to just paint these incredible pictures. And this one is that God is all-knowing. He doesn't just say plainly, well, God knows everything. No, he says it in a beautiful way. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. The point, of course, is that God knows us far better than we even know ourselves. He knows every action that you take. He knows every word that you say. From the moment that we rise up in the morning to the moment that we go to sleep, God knows every detail. But it's even more than that. 
Because what does it say? David says, you even know the deepest thoughts of my heart. For us, we can tell sometimes how someone's doing from the outside. We can look at each other and we can kind of know how you're doing. Maybe you try to figure it out, but we don't know the heart. We don't know what's really going on, but God is different. God sees into our deepest motivations. He sees into those parts of our lives that we may be ashamed of, those parts of our lives that we're not proud of. He says, I know you completely. He knows everything. He is all-knowing. But that's not all. David goes on to say, not only is God omniscient, God is also omnipresent, which means God is everywhere. Verses 7 through 12 talk about how we are surrounded by his presence. Again, David poetically paints this picture by by showing us these kind of polar opposites. What does he say in verse 8? He says, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there. What he's talking about is the stars. He's looking upward and he's saying, if I go as high as I can go, you are there. And then what does he say at the end of verse 8? And then if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, that word Sheol is the place of the dead. It's the depths of the earth. It's the grave. And so you can kind of get a picture of what he's doing here. He's saying, if I can go as high as I could go into the sky, you are there. If I go into the depths of the earth, you are there. If that were not enough, look at verse 9. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, what's he talking about? He's talking about the eastern horizon where the sun rises. What does he say after that? Or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. If you're in Israel, where is the Mediterranean Sea? It's to your west. So he's already said, up, down, you're everywhere. Now what is he saying? He's saying, if I go the furthest place to the east, if I go to the furthest place to the west, still you are there. There your hand is guiding me. It is there. There is no place in all of creation that God's face is not there. He is all-knowing. He is ever-present. But then there's this third thing. God is omnipotent, which is a word that simply means that God is all-powerful. He not only knows all, he is not everywhere, he also is all-powerful. Every moment of our lives is surrounded by his power. Look at verses 13 through 18. It talks about this. Verse 13, it says, For you, talking about God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. What's that saying? Your body was created by God. Your soul was created by God. From the moment of conception, God's hands were powerfully at work in your life. But then look at verse 16. It says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, what he's saying is this. Not only does God create, ordain, and uphold our physical life and our our spiritual life, But also God creates and he sustains and he ordains everything, every single day of our history. It's all under his power. It's all under his plan. Now, do you see what David is doing in this text? He's covering every part of your life. At one end of life is conception. At the other is death. It's that time of being frail. And at every moment he says, my power is on display. I was at work in your mother's womb. And I'm ordaining every single day. When we're there and we're thinking, what am I even here for at the end of life? He says, that even is ordained. There's a plan. There's a reason. From conception to the last breath, God is in charge. His power is evident in life. 
Now, David is making these proclamations, and I just want to stop for a moment. I don't want to spend much time here because this is not the main point of this text. But there is a very clear and timely ethical implication here that I don't feel as your pastor I can just skip over. Everyone over the centuries who has read and taken this passage seriously, from the earliest Christians to the present, have come to this conclusion, that both abortion and active euthanasia are wrong and are against God's will. Why is that? Because in both of those situations, what we have done is put ourselves in the place of God. This passage reveals that both life and death are his, and they are not ours. I want you to think about this this morning. Life at the very, very beginning in the womb and life at the very, very end are what? They are fragile. These are the most vulnerable moments of life. They might even, you might even say these are inconvenient moments in life. But friends, if it is God who is creating and forming and ordaining these moments, then what that means, it is never our right to step in and say, we know better than you. That is the same sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. When we do so, we set ourselves on the throne of life in the place of him. You see, even in the womb, we were made in the image of God, which means in that moment, we are utterly valuable to him. And at the other end of life, when life may seem useless, when we may think, why not just end it all? He says, that's not your right. Every day is ordained by me. I create, I uphold, I give life, and ultimately I take life away. Now, I know it's hard this morning, but I'm asking you this morning, please do not listen to this through a political lens. This was written, written way before our current culture wars. This is not a matter of Democrat, Republicans. This is not a matter of politics. This is about God's glory and the rights that are only His. Every life that He creates is fearfully and wonderfully made, whether we see them as convenient or not. And just to show that this is not just a partisan issue, let me just also point out that the clear ethical implication is that we as God's people not only should be advocates and care for the unborn, but that we should be advocates and care for and serve every person who this society shows as an outcast. Every person that is vulnerable in our society, the weakest of our society, which would include who? The immigrant, the refugee, what the Bible calls the foreigner. It also includes those maybe that this culture says they're inconvenient, those with disabilities. We as God's people are the people who should be their greatest advocates. All the way from the unborn through every piece of life, we're the ones that should say at every situation, you are valuable because you are made in the image of God. Every day of your life is ordained with purpose. doesn't matter what this culture says about you. Friends, this is our role as the church. We are to be the ones that step in. We are the ones that should be stepping up to adopt. We're the ones that should be stepping up to be advocates. But friends, if you are only, if your primary allegiance is to a political party or a political figure, you will never get one end or the other. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ this morning. And everything we do should be guided by that one principle. Whether we recognize it or not, we are surrounded in every way by the infinite knowledge and presence and power of God. 
That is the main point of the text this morning. But what is so helpful, I think, about this text is that not only does David say, this is who God is. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He is all-powerful. But then what does he do? He looks at us and he says, not only am I going to show you that, but I'm going to show you how humanity responds to that knowledge. You see, as humans, we're going to respond in one of two ways. Either God's ever-present knowledge and power is going to make us cower in fear. We're going to try to run from him. We're going to try to get rid of his authority. Or what? We're going to embrace that authority. And we see both of these things in the text. Look at verse 6. The first reaction of David to this knowledge of God is this. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, this is one of those places where translation can be a little bit tricky. Because in our English translation, this can look like David saying, this knowledge is just so wonderful, like it's an exclamation point. That's not what David is saying here. What David is saying is that this knowledge that you have over my life is overwhelming to me. It's too much. Literally, he's saying, it is against me. It's overwhelming for David to even fathom. And that's confirmed by verse 7 where David says what? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go that you are not there? You see, from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until now, humanity's initial reaction to an all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God is to seek to get out of His authority over our lives. We would rather live as if we had no authority to whom we are accountable to. At our core, we do not trust that God has our best interest in mind, and so what do we do? We try to hide from Him. We try to get away from Him. We try to rebel against Him by doing what we want to do, what we think is best. And then when we are confronted about our rebellion, what do we do? Like Adam and Eve, we hide. But what we see in this psalm is that it doesn't have to be that way. By the end of this psalm, David has changed his whole picture of God's knowledge and his power. It's totally changed because by the end of the psalm, what is he doing? He's saying, God, search me. I want you to know me. I want to have a relationship with you. All of a sudden, his presence is no longer a threat, but instead it's an incredible comfort and blessing. Well, how does David get there? I think verses 11 and 12 are kind of the turning point here. He says something pretty intriguing if you look at it. He says, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. Now, if you were here earlier, Psalm chapter 88, what do we say about darkness? We said that that moment of darkness is that point of utter despair. That moment of hopelessness where we have no hope, where we feel complete shame, where we feel like there is no escape. In the darkness, you have lost hope. But what does David say here? He's saying this. What if you have a God who will never, ever leave you? What if you have a God who is always there, who no matter how dark your darkness is, will always have you by the hand. All of a sudden, he says, it's in the midst of this darkness that you see this ever-knowing, all-knowing, all-powerful God that never leaves you is not something to be run from. It's something to be embraced. something to be treasured. He says, even in my darkness will turn to light because of you. And then look, look at verse 17. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. And listen to these words. 
I awake and I am still with you. It seems random for him to put in there. He's talking about how precious God's thoughts are to him, how God's knowledge is all of a sudden this wonderful, valuable thing. But it all comes down to those words. Why? Because when he says, I awake and I am still with you, what he is talking about is not waking up from being asleep. He's talking about death. In this moment, David is looking and he's saying, I have a God who is with me always. Even if I die, he will not leave me. He's going to wake me up. And in my resurrected body, I am going to see him face to face. To David, this is a thought that totally transforms his perspective. He realizes that while everything else fades in death, a relationship with God does not. God never leaves him or forsakes him, and so he sees this as a wonderful thing. Friends, this text begs the question, how are each one of you in this room responding to God this morning? I'm not asking how you responded to God in some past day. I'm asking how are you responding to God right now, this knowledge that you have a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing and never leaves you. How are you responding this morning? Does that thought make you want to run? Does that thought make you want to rebel and hide? Or have you embraced that thought? For many of us, this is a struggle, and honestly, it makes total sense. Think about human relationships. Think about your relationships with other people. On the one hand, one of our greatest desires in life, I think I'm being true in this. You can tell me if I'm not. But I think one of our greatest desires in life is to be fully known and fully loved. We long to be known and loved. If someone doesn't really know us and they say they love us, that doesn't mean anything to us. We want to be known and loved. But on the other hand, one of the main reasons we don't let anybody close to us is why? Because we don't want anybody to know the real us. We're afraid that if somebody really knows everything about us, then what? That they could never love us. Imagine with me this morning that I, were to, I was given a list of your most juicy, most lustful, most angry, most selfish thoughts just in the last week, okay? Now, if I were to tell you this week, hey, I got the list, I see all your thoughts, I know all that there is, I'm going to take the top 20, and I'm going to put them on the screen for the rest of the church family. What are you probably going to do that next Sunday? You're going to hide, right? You're not going to show up. Why? Because you are absolutely terrified that if everyone in this room knew everything about you, the deepest thoughts of your heart, that they would no longer love you. Right? Well, friends, what if this God, who has the most infinite knowledge of your life, who sees both the inside and the outside, your actions, your motives, your heart, what if this God who sees you at your darkest days, your most lustful your most angry, your most selfish thoughts, what if this God loves you? He fully knows you, and yet he still fully loves you. That's the point that David has come to understand in this psalm. He knows that when he says, God, search me, he knows God is going to find some things that he is not proud of. But you see, David realizes that when he finds those things, God's not there to exploit them. That when he finds those things, he's not there to reject David. No, instead, he's there to change David. To bring about life for David. 
How can we know this same thing? How can we know that God fully knows us and yet God fully loves us? Well, look no further than the cross. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, okay? Not when we cleaned up, not when we became good. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 1.21, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, God knew that you were going to betray him. Jesus knew that you were going to ignore him. Jesus knew that you were going to rebel against him. And yet, what did Jesus do? He went to the cross. Why? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, knowing all these dirty secrets that we don't want to share with anybody else. Because he loves us. I love what Tim Keller said. I think it will be on the screen. It's a, a statement I've told you before, but it's such an important statement. He said this, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, the more that that statement hits home, the more the reality of this text hits home, that God knows us and he's ordained all of these things for our good, the more that it will change you. It is this kind of experience of forgiveness and the love of God that changes the way that we relate to him. No longer do we have to hide from him. No longer do we have to run from him. But instead we say, God, search my heart. We go with David. He says, search my heart, know my heart. Test me to find if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When you know God loves you, you're open. You're an open book to him. You say, God, I want you to change me. I know there are parts that I'm not proud of, but I want you to look into my life. Show me those things and transform me. That's what David does here. The message of this psalm is simple, and yet it is powerful. Do you realize, every single one of you in this room, God created you. God created you. But not only did God create you, but in this moment, God is with you. He's with you. Every individual, he's with you, he's with you, he's with you. But not only that, God knows you. God knows every detail. He knows every thought. And ultimately, what do we find in this text? That knowing all these things, God loves us. My heart as your pastor is that you would stop running or hiding from God. That you'd stop stop striving to try to earn his love. His love is evidence for you on the cross. If you are in a relationship with Jesus, you are more loved in this moment than you will ever be. You are forgiven. But for those of you who are at this moment not submitting to Jesus, you've not accepted what he's done on the cross for you, you're continuing to run, you're continuing to rebel, you're continuing to hide, I want you to know something. That when death comes, you will get exactly what you want. You will be separated from him for eternity in a real place called hell. But God loves you this morning, and he wants you to be in relationship with him. My prayer is that you will come to him, that you will embrace his presence, and that you will embrace the love that he has for you today. Let's pray together.
this morning, we want to just give you a moment of just quiet. I know in the busyness of life with all social media and the news and everything else, I I would imagine some of you have just been running and running this week. But I want you to give you a moment this morning just to simply spend some time in prayer with our Heavenly Father. This may be a time where you need to just open your heart and say, search me, O God. I've been running from you. I've been avoiding you. But God, I want you to, to show me my sin. I want to repent of that sin, and I want to walk with you. This time may be a time of confession. It may be a time for you to repent. For some of you, it may be a time to just really just embrace the love that God has for you. You've been listening to Satan's lie that he doesn't really care about you or that he's angry with you in this moment. If you're a follower of Jesus right now, you are more loved than you will ever be. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, I would just ask you to consider this morning what Jesus has done on the cross. By going to the cross, he took the punishment for sin that you deserved. And he gives you the opportunity to have eternal life. A life that starts right now today, but a life that will be even after you die. Eternal relationship with him. This all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God has made a way for you to be in a relationship with him. Consider this morning trusting in him. We're going to give you this time for prayer. I'll come and close here in just a few moments.